welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. As you're being seated, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Our text for the morning is Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. If you just hold your Bibles open for a few moments, I would like to give you a little context before I give you the text. We probably cannot understand the trauma that the Jewish people experienced when in 70 AD their temple was destroyed and much of the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the 10th Roman Legion under Titus. We probably can't imagine what it meant to the Jewish people in the Holy Land and beyond, what it meant to lose their center, their center of their Christian faith, their Jewish faith, the center of the unity of their people. We probably can't understand the trauma of the warfare that preceded the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus, about 40 years before, prophesied to the Jewish people and his own disciples about the coming destruction of the temple. You know, the closest I think perhaps we could get to understanding the trauma of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD upon the Jewish people would be to think about 9-11 and the destruction of the, of the World Trade Center and just magnify that many, many times. And then maybe you will get close to understanding what the Jewish people experienced when 40 years after Jesus, the temple was destroyed. The temple was one of the eight wonders, eight wonders of the ancient world. It was a majestic temple. It was the second temple for the Jewish people uh, after Solomon's temple, which was destroyed first in 586 B.C. The second temple that was built, beginning with Ezra after the Jewish people returned from Babylonian captivity, and the temple was continuing to be renovated and enlarged during the time of King Herod the Great. For over 60 years, they were working on the temple, making it more and more majestic there in Jerusalem. That was the temple that Jesus knew in Jesus' day. Again, the center of the Jewish faith at that point, the center of Jewish unity at that point. So after this temple gets destroyed, there's no more animal sacrifice. After this temple is destroyed, there's no more priesthood. And the Jewish people have to completely revision what it meant to be Jewish after the destruction of the temple. Forty years before 
the destruction of the temple and the warfare and the siege of Jerusalem that preceded the destruction of the temple, Jesus prophesied to the people that that day would come. And that's what we read here in Luke chapter 21. Jesus and his closest followers are in the temple there in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith at that point. And Jesus has a conversation with his followers. I'm sure it was a conversation that rocked, completely rocked their world. Even though there's probably much about what Jesus was telling them that they could not receive, couldn't grasp or understand. And we read what Jesus said to them on that day recorded here in Luke chapter 21. I'll begin reading at verse 5. When some were speaking about the temple, that's where they are, when some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked Jesus, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And Jesus said to them, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first. But the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, Jesus says... They will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to witness or to testify. So make up your minds now, Jesus says, not to prepare your defense in advance. For I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Even this, even this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we pray that we will have ears to hear what you're saying to us today. We know, God, that you have a word for each one of us. May we receive it. God, help us to define life. Help us to define our lives by what you tell us. 
We thank you, God, that you are a God that has spoken to us. You are a God that reveals your will to us. And like John Wesley said, we're so grateful that we have it in this book. So we're grateful for what you have revealed to us through your word. We pray, God, that today we will receive it and allow it to be crucial and central to our lives. Take us, God, and make us completely and perfectly yours. Claim us. Make such a claim upon each one of our lives that the world around us, everyone we encounter, will know. We'll know that we belong to you. In the strong and saving name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't think we can understand or appropriate the trauma that the Jewish people experienced when their temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And much of the New Testament was written in light of that event that occurred about 40 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. It changed the world as they knew it. And they had to revision their faith, they had to revision all of life after the destruction of the temple. When the Gospels were written, the Gospels were all written not long after the temple was destroyed. The shadow of that event hovers over all the writing of the Gospels. The trauma of that event hovers over the writing of the Gospels. And Jesus remarkably prophesied about 40 years in advance that that day would come. He told his closest followers there would come a day when they would come against them. He says there would come a day when people would turn against each other because of his name. And that happened as the Roman army was coming to lay siege against Jerusalem during the first Jewish revolt. Some of the people there in Jerusalem were, were willing and eager to give up for their own sakes and not try to stand against the 10th Roman legion. And the Jews there in Jerusalem in 70 AD, they really couldn't come to an agreement on how they should deal with this impending crisis. And it really created a civil war that occurred before Rome even destroyed Jerusalem and that majestic Jewish temple. And Jews turned against each other in those days, particularly in that period when they were in the city of Jerusalem, had the gates closed, and Rome was laying siege to the city before they breached the walls and destroyed the temple and most of the city. The Jewish community there was turning against each other. And particularly some of the Jewish community was turning against some of the, the new Christ followers that were there. The people who were celebrating that the Messiah had come. And they had given themselves to the teaching of the Messiah Jesus this Jesus of Nazareth. So a civil war preceded the final destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Those were tough times. Those were terrible days. Historians tell us that perhaps as, as many as a million people died as Rome was laying siege to Jerusalem. I'm not sure we can comprehend the trauma of this event that cast a shadow over the, all the writing of most of the New Testament anyway. 
And Jesus predicted it. Remarkably precise, Jesus predicted it. He said, people will turn against you. They will bring you before synagogues. They'll bring you before rulers. But it will be a time for you to witness, for you to testify, witness to your faith, for you to let the world know to whom you belong. And he says, he's very honest with them here in this text, some of you will die as a result of your faith in me. Jesus was very clear that this tough time would come in their life. And though there's been very little in the history of the last 2,000 years to come close to the toughness of this time, in the life of this early Christian community that was there in Jerusalem, it seems as if our history throughout the last 2,000 years has been written in light of this kind of historical experience. Jesus promised us many things. Some of the promises of Jesus to us we love and we cling to. Things such as, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to where I am. There are many of the promises of Jesus Christ to which we cling. But we forget that Jesus also, throughout the Gospels, promised us that we would face persecution. We would face tribulation. That was part of the package deal for the Christian community. Jesus said things like, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross, an instrument of execution, and follow me. Jesus said things like, whoever wants to preserve his or her life will lose it. But whoever loses his life or her life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus was very honest when he said to his followers in the Gospel of John, because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's strong language. The world hates you. He says, if they persecuted me, he's telling us, his early followers and us, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In the world you face persecution. Jesus said, you face tribulation, but take courage. I have conquered, I have overcome the world. This is the way Jesus said it would be, and sometimes we've been lulled into a complacency, particularly here in the West, the part of the globe that was founded by Christendom, that Jesus said this would be part of our existence in history. He, he closed this discussion, this honest discussion with his followers by saying things like, you will be hated. Back to the text. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. Most of my hairs have already perished. I know what he's saying here. He's not promising that we won't suffer. He's not even promising that we won't die for our faith. He's saying that we will not be eternally or spiritually destroyed. 
when he says, not a hair of your head will perish. And then verse 19 is the verse I really want you to grab hold of this morning, where Jesus says, but your endurance, by your endurance, you will gain your souls. Another way of translating this verse from the Greek would simply to say, by standing firm, you will gain life. One of the most significant words in the New Testament, in New Testament Greek, occurs here in this verse, verse 19. It's the word that's translated with the Bible in front of me, endurance. Sometimes this word is translated endurance, steadfastness, patient endurance, or perseverance. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. By standing firm, you'll find life. The Greek word here is hupomone. It's a word that's used in some form or fashion at least 45 times in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, we are called to be a people of hupomone, a people of endurance, a people of perseverance, a people of steadfastness and patient endurance. Jesus calls us to this consistently. Jesus says that we need to, particularly in those tough times, and they come in a lot of different creative ways, particularly in those tough times, we need to be a people of hupomone because those are wonderful moments to witness to our faith, to testify, as Jesus says. Because particularly in those moments when we hurt, when we suffer, when life is tough, the world is watching us. Our friends and our family, they're watching us. They want to see how we suffer, how we respond. They want to see how we respond to attacks, whether they're just verbal, cultural attacks, or even the physical attacks that Christians have had to endure throughout our history. Do we, res do we respond in like manner? Or, we, or do we stay a people of hupomone that, that continues to hold on to grace and love and extravagant mercy and a certain level of dignity as people come at us, as people attack us, as people disagree with us, are we able to respond in a way that declares radical love to the world. We stay firm. We stay firm. We endure. We hold tight to Jesus Christ and the faith that's been delivered to us. But do we respond in a way that truly bears witness to who we are in Jesus Christ? Hupomone is a great word. And it's a great word that to remind us the kind of lifestyle we're to embrace. The word hupomone in the Greek world sometimes was used of a plant, a plant that somehow could thrive, survive and thrive, even in the midst of a harsh climate, in the midst of extremely unwelcoming circumstances. Hupomone was, was a word that means to, to have some spiritual staying power, when life is very difficult, to have some spiritual staying power even in the face of death itself. William Barclay, that great Scottish preacher, that great Bible teacher of a previous generation, explained hupomone with these words. He said, it is the spirit 
which can bear things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. It is not the Spirit which sits statically, enduring in the one place, but the Spirit which bears things because it knows that these things are leading to the goal of glory. It is not the patience with which grimly waits for the end, but the patience which radiantly hopes for the dawn. That's, that's hupomone. That's what we're called to exhibit here in this world. And it really is a gift that's given to us, if we want to receive it, from the gift of the Spirit. You know, Jesus evidently, unlike some contemporary preachers, was not primarily propelled and compelled by just the desire to draw a crowd or to keep a crowd. Jesus was ruthlessly honest with his followers. And he said multiple times, the closer you get to him, the more the world may disagree with you, may persecute you. Jesus used the word hate you. Jesus was honest throughout the Gospels about the cost that we have to pay. Perhaps we'll be called on to pay to be a Christ follower in this, in this world. There are two pictures that I carry in my preaching Bible that I usually have in front of me when I'm preaching. I've referred to one one time before, but you might not have been here, so I'll tell you about it again. I don't think I've referred to the other one from the pulpit. There are two pictures in my preaching Bible. One is a picture of a wood carving of John Rogers. John Rogers was the first Protestant Christian killed in 1555 by Bloody Mary. That's why we call her Bloody Mary. She killed about 250 early Protestants. John Rogers was a Cambridge scholar who helped William Tyndale translate the Bible from the Latin into the language of the people. For them, it was English. So John Rogers, along with William Tyndale, Miles Coverdale, they were, they were among the first to translate the Bible into English for the English-speaking people. And as a result, they were severely persecuted. They were arrested. And John Rogers was the first to die in February 1555, there in Smithfields on the outskirts of London. And I keep his picture in my Bible. Uh, I like genealogy, and I just happen to know that I'm a direct descendant of John Rogers. It's not hard to do. When he was burned at the stake, he left behind 12 children and his wife. There are a lot of descendants of John Rogers in the English-speaking world. But I keep this picture of a wood carving of him being burned at the stake because of his faith and how he refused to recant his convictions concerning Jesus Christ. That's one picture I keep in my preaching Bible. Another picture that I keep in my preaching Bible is a picture that alludes to a recent event. It's a picture of an icon, a religious painting, of 21 Coptic Christians Coptic Christianity is an old branch of Christianity uh, that exists in the, the, the northern part of Africa, in the Middle East, 
principally in Egypt. The Coptic church, uh, they say, and it's probably true, was founded by St. Mark. It's an early branch of Christianity. In 2015, 21 Coptic Christians in Libya were arrested because of their faith in Jesus Christ by some Muslim extremists. They were led out to the shore of the Mediterranean there in Libya. There was a videotape made that was shared worldwide of those 21 Coptic Christians who had refused to recant their faith in Jesus Christ and as a result were beheaded there on the shore of the Mediterranean in Libya in 2015. So I'm grateful that there's been artwork done now, religious icons created of those 21 Coptic Christians who gave the last measure of sacrifice because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that there would be seasons and times and places when Christians would be called on to do that. That's what he's saying here in this text. I keep these two pictures in my Bible because when I look at them, it, it, it helps me in so many ways. It keeps me from whining sometimes, and maybe not you, but I need, I need to be reminded to quit whining. It's, I, I like to whine. And we all need to whine from time to time. And, you know, I'm sort of a whiner at times. And I look at these pictures and I realize, no, life's not that tough yet. I look at these pictures. It reminds me to keep focused on the important things in life. It reminds me to avoid focusing on petty issues. It reminds me that there are some life and death matters in this world it reminds me that all over the world today, while we worship here in peace, many, many Christians are in the midst of an environment where they may very well pay with their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. The U.S. State Department says there are at least 60 nations on this globe where it is dangerous to be Christian. If you just use their statistics and do the math, I'm told, that means that one out of every nine Christians on this globe find themselves in a place where it's dangerous to be Christian, where they may very well have to pay the last ultimate sacrifice and give the last measure of devotion by allowing their lives to be taken in martyrdom for the cause of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, when these times come, you will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be eternally safe, secure. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. By standing firm, you will find life. I've often wondered, church, if I was called upon to choose life, or my faith in Jesus Christ, my loyalty to Jesus Christ, if I would have the strength to do like millions of Christians have done throughout our history and choose death rather than recanting my faith in Jesus Christ. You've heard me say before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, statistically more Christians have died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than any other century in Christian history. And the best we can tell, the 21st century will follow suit. 
because there's so many of us now in the world. I've wondered what would I do if I was threatened with death or recanting my faith. I know that I don't have the power to stand. But I also know Jesus has promised that when the time comes, he will give us the words to say. When the time comes, he will give us the gift of hupomone, steadfast endurance, patient endurance, perseverance. No, we don't have the power to do it, but we have a power that we can access that will help us live beyond our capabilities. We're in a culture now, church, where there's always been and still is a lot of pressure to accommodate, to assimilate, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in major ways, and we have to day by day, almost decision by decision, decide whether or not we're going to accommodate what the culture wants of us or whether or not we will hold true to the faith, as the New Testament says, that faith that was once delivered by the saints, to the saints. The pressure here, at least at this point in our history, is to just accommodate, to be conformed to this world. And I remember almost on a daily basis what Paul said to us, do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the transforming of your mind. We have to think differently, and we have to hold on to our faith if we don't want to be conformed to this age, to our culture. It's been this way since the beginning. Jesus said it would be this way. And sometimes we get complacent by thinking that it's okay to just go alone in order to get along. But sometimes we're called to make a decision, to make a choice, to stand firm so that we can experience life in this world and in the world to come. The world is watching us as we suffer. The world is watching us as the world disagrees with us. They want to see how we respond. They not only want to see what it is we respond with, but they want to see how we respond. So we need to make sure that we stay close enough to Jesus Christ to receive the gift of that Spirit, to experience hupomone, the strength to endure. By standing firm, you will gain life. Let's sing and allow Charles Wesley to speak a word to us. <clears throat>